Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. So today, I want to talk about the all-knowing, ever-present God. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is just a beautiful, beautiful picture of the majesty, the magnificence, and the power of God, but from a very personal and intimate perspective. David reveals in this psalm evidence of God's omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. And it's in a way that we can understand because David personalizes those things to us. You know, those are big theological terms, but uh, they are so much more when we can apply those things to our life, to our relationship with the Lord. So it's really a revealing of God's intimate relationship with us, his loving kindness, his individual personal love and care for each and every man, woman, and child ever created is just unveiled, comes to life in this psalm. It's beautiful, poetic in its writing, and we can get a picture of God's hand upon us. And through this psalm, like many others that reveal the attributes of God, as we become more familiar with who he is, his glory will be revealed to us. And in those things, we will sense his presence and his closeness to us. And isn't that what we desire, what we should desire as Christians, to have a closer relationship with the Lord. So I'm going to jump in in the first six verses here, and then we'll unpack that a little bit. So it says, For the chief musician, a psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hands upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now you can just picture in your mind the majesty of the Lord and David's relationship with him. David was called a man after God's own heart. Now, David was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We have 
we have uh, scriptures that will show his imperfections and his, and his sin. Yet, his desire was for God, for a closer relationship. And he recognized that special relationship that every believer has with his creator. So in these first few verses, David here is kind of establishing this awesome principle that God has perfect knowledge of us. Now, some of us might be a little bit scared about that. That might be frightening to some, that God knows us perfectly. He knows everything about us. But it should also be comforting to us. He knows our movements. He knows our activities. He knows when we bring him glory, and he knows when we bring him shame. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we see that God knows all about us, and if we're walking with him, that's a very comforting thing. We know that he has our back. We know that he has a plan and a purpose for our life. In verse 1, he says, you have searched me and known me. Now, this isn't knowledge that God attains. This isn't anything that he's learned. You know, God is all-knowing. It means that he can't learn anything. He already knows it. And, And that's also a very comforting thing, that he knows the end from the beginning. He knows our past, present, and future. Nothing's a surprise to God. Now, if we say that somebody, a human being, can't know anything, can't learn anything, we would think that that's, that's, there's a fault in them somewhere, that there's something wrong with them if we say that they can't learn anything or that they're not teachable. But God is not teachable because he knows it all already. He knows everything that ever could be known. You can't do anything that surprises God. And David takes those attributes of God's omniscience and he, apply, he applies them to some aspects of our humanity, actions, thoughts, and words. And he makes it personal. Notice he said that God searches him. That's an active, personal effort on the part of God. It's not that just that he knows everything about you. It's that he desires to know everything about you. That's a beautiful, intimate, personal thing. He knows my sitting down and my rising up. He knows our every move. That, ser- that word search in the Hebrew is, Hebrew is to examine with pain and care. He puts effort into his relationship with us, desiring to know And he knows everything about us, and yet he still loves us. And isn't that an amazing thing? It says in verse 3, you understand my thought afar off. So no, we can't read people's minds, but God knows what we're thinking. God knows our every move. He knows our every thought. He knows which actions will have which circumstances or consequences. And he knows those thoughts that we have that are not pleasing to him. 
God knows them all. And then in verse 4, it says, There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So we see the completeness of God's knowledge of us, his intimacy, his personal relationship with us. He knows our actions, our thoughts, and he knows our words. He knows those things that we're going to say before we even say them. You know, sometimes we'd like to try to take back words that we say that might be hurtful. Or in today's technology, those things that we type or text, you know, they haven't come up with, with what I know of is a, a reverse to sending that text. It's gone. It's there. God already knew that. You know, so it, it's, it's a beautiful thing. The idea of God's perfect knowledge of who we really are should really cause us to lean on him even more. Because apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in believers, uh, and we can ignore the Holy Spirit, we can suppress the Holy Spirit, we can deny the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And apart from that, we're unable to really please God. But even in that, he desires a relationship with us. He wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to make us into the image of his son who was perfect. And so in verses 5 and 6, we we see here the psalmist's response to the fact that God knows us perfectly and completely. He says, you have hedged me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So here we see David, instead of being in fear or dread, he feels secure. He feels protected. You know, I think of as parents, we want our children to know that our desire is for the best for them. When we ask our our young children, you know, where they're going or who their friends are, it's not because we just want to be nosy. It's that we love them. We want to offer guidance and protection and security. Same thing with God. He desires to reassure us that he's got the best for us. He's behind us to pick us up if we fall, to restore us when we fail and protect us from our enemies. He's ahead of us. He's leading us and guiding us. He's clearing a path before us. He's lighting it so that we can see his plan and his purpose for our life. The psalmist speaks of this intimate relationship with respect and with awe. And he expressed the same sense of awe in an earlier psalm. In Psalm 144, verse 3, it says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you are mindful of him? When we consider the majesty of God, we, we kind of see ourselves in stark contrast to that. And like the psalmist, we may wonder, why would God even take notice of us? Considering how high and lofty and majestic he is, how perfect he is, why would he even consider us? But the reality is that's why he created us. He created us for relationship. And we know from the beginning of time that that man is going to fall, man is going to fail, we are going to sin. 
And yet God continues to pursue us, right? Continues to pursue us. It was too awesome for David to even think about or even attempt to understand this beautiful, personal, intimate relationship that God wants with us. God's ways are higher than our ways. And sometimes those high and lofty things we can't comprehend. We don't quite get it. But that's okay. We can take comfort in the knowledge that he loves us regardless. And he's got the best for us. In verses 7 through 10, we see David here continuing to express the truth about God's attributes. He talks about his omnipresence. His omnipresence, it's that theological term that speaks of the fact that God isn't limited by space like we are. It goes on in verses 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me and your right hand shall hold me. Now, some would look, read those verses and conclude that since God knows us so well and there's no way to escape him, that we would try to run and hide from him. You know, Adam and Eve tried to do that back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Hid themselves. Now they tried and failed to escape God's presence. But the truth is that God's presence is really what we need the most. If we desire to live a fruitful life and enjoy the love of God, we should want him to be close, close to us, not try to run away and hide from him. Certainly, if we go to heaven at the time of our death, he'll be there because that's his eternal dwelling place. If we make our bed in hell, which is really the Hebrew word for Sheol, which is really the earthly grave, well, God is there too. God is present in the everlasting flames of wrath against those who have not believed. If a man finds himself in a remote part of the earth, and this is a question that a lot of people have, God is there. He's present. He's in the wonder of creation as we look around us. And for that person who's in the most remote part of this world, there's no place that you can go where God's presence isn't there. Remember, Jonah tried and failed to flee from the presence of the Lord. He turned and ran in the opposite direction when God was calling him to a task. And yet... There God was. It says in Jonah 1, 3, and 4, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. So Jonah tried 
to flee from God. He jumped on a ship and tried to go in the opposite direction. And guess what? God was there. God had a purpose for Jonah. He had a plan for his life. And you may try to run from God, but his desire is to pursue you to reveal that plan to your life. In verses 11 and 12 in Psalm 139, it goes on, it says, If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. So even if we try to hide from God in the darkness, he, it's still revealed to him. Darkness and light are the same. He is light. He gives light to all things. And if we think we're hiding our sin from him in the dark, he will expose it. It says in Ephesians 5.13, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. Whatever makes manifest is light. We can't run from our sin. God knows it all. And David is also saying in these verses here that although he may experience or we may experience the darkness of trials or suffering, tribulations, loss, grief, mourning, all of those difficult things that we go through as human beings, that God can bring light into the darkest time, times of our life. When we are at our lowest, when we're really struggling, God breaks through that darkness and he brings comfort and his presence into our lives. David goes on in the following verses here to describe the intimacy for which God has created us. This is the, one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible. And in verse, verses 13 through 16, just listen to these beautiful words. David writes, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. These verses speak of the hand of God upon every person who was ever conceived. The Bible speaks clearly about the beginning of life at conception. The Bible is very clear that not only does life begin at conception, but that God knows us before we were even born. He knows us. This is a personal thing. This is an intimate thing. David writes, you covered me in my mother's room, womb in verse 13, and I am skillfully wrought in verse 15. 
He's saying, God, you wove me together like a beautiful tapestry. Every single part of that makes us who we are, makes us us, gives us uniqueness and individuality in this world. And this is not really a psalm about the about biology. This is about our mind and our emotions and our soul all being beautifully knit together by God. Speaking to the prophet Jeremiah when he was commissioned by the Lord to to ministry, to go into ministry, God says in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. What reassuring words to Jeremiah, who was going to have probably one of the most difficult ministries of any prophet. You know, he's called the weeping prophet. You know, God put him, placed him into ministry and he sustained him through ministry, but it was very difficult. And those words of reassurance, Jeremiah, this is not a mistake. Those people that are coming against you, that was part of my plan too. Those people who wanted to kill you for the things that you told them, the truths that you told them about who I am and the judgment that would be coming upon the world, Jeremiah, that's part of my plan. I knew you, Jeremiah, before you were even born. I had a plan set out for your life, Jeremiah. I set you apart, Jeremiah, for a plan and a purpose greater than you could ever imagine. If you ever wondered if God has a plan for your life because your life is just going in a, in a million different directions, sit still, seek him. Ask him to reveal his plan for you. He has sanctified each and every one of us. That just means he set us apart. Set us apart for his purposes. You know, when they took the implements of the the, uh, temple, uh, they would be sanctified. They would be set apart for just that particular purpose. God has a unique plan for each and every person, whoever lived and whoever will live. Never, ever doubt that. Just because life may not look that way to you right now. Believe that God has set you apart. Ephesians 1.4 tells us, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so not even just before we were born, before the worlds was, were born, he knew us, he ordained us, he chose us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to what the good pleasure of his will. It's God's will. And God knew who was going to receive him, who was going to deny him. His perspective, again, is from the end to the beginning. He knows it all. He sees the entirety of human history and he he knew who would decide to follow him. By his foreknowledge, 
He knew us. And he planned our lives out with a beautiful purpose that we can't even imagine. 1 Peter 1, 2 tells us, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, set apart for the work of God, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Sanctified to the work of the Lord. Verse 14 says, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. All the praise, all the honor, all the glory goes to God. Even our parents were only the instruments that God used to bring about our birth. The psalmist here is expressing his personal sense of God's hand upon his life. To be fearfully and wonderfully made is to admit the power and the majesty of God the Creator and to fall down in worship to Him. One commentator puts it this way on this verse 14, I am wonderfully made. He says, take notice of the curious frame of the body. David said, I am wonderfully made, painted as with a needle, like a garment of needlework, of diverse colors, richly embroidered with nerves and veins. And then he goes on and he says, what shall I speak of the eye wherein there is such curious workmanship? You know, David didn't know the intricacies of biology and physiology and how our bodies worked. They didn't have that understanding back then, but he knew it was marvelous. The commentator goes on and he says, what, what shall I speak of the eye wherein there is such curious workmanship that, upon, that many upon the first sight of it have been driven to acknowledge God? The first sight of the intricate creation of just the eye would drive people to God, knowing that there's a creator, knowing that th- th- it wasn't by accident. These things could not happen by accident. He says, he goes on and says, of the hand made to open and shut and serve the labors and ministries of nature without wasting and decaying for many years. If they should be of marble or iron with such constant use, they would soon wear out. God knew what he was doing. Flesh and bone and blood and veins and vessels and all of that stuff that makes up our bodies. He knew what he was doing. He goes on and he says, of the head fitly placed to be the seat of the senses, to command and direct the rest of the members, of the lungs, a frail piece of flesh, yet, though in continual action of long use, your lungs continue to take in air and, and distribute blood through the rest of the, the body. Your lungs, they're just flesh, and yet look what they do in our bodies. 
It would be easy to enlarge on this occasion, the commentator goes on, but I am to preach a sermon, not read an anatomy lecture. In short, therefore, every part is so placed and framed as if God had employed his whole wisdom about it. And he has employed his whole wisdom about creating each and every one of us. He didn't take a shortcut with anybody. And we're all different. And some are short, some are tall. Some have 20-20 vision, some need glasses. It doesn't matter. God knew what he was doing. He used his whole wisdom in creating each and every person who ever lived. He goes on in verse 15, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Our birth was completed under the examination of a personal, intimate God. Our birth was completed under the operation and workmanship of the hands of God who created everything in this world. Nothing happens in the nine months of formation apart from God's loving hand. Therefore, everyone, everyone without exception has value in this world. Everyone has value. Now I'm going to take a a little break here and show a quick video and then I'll come back and we'll kind of close it all up. So just take a look at this. God, you know me. You know everything about me. You know the exact moment I fall asleep and the exact moment I will awake. You know every step I take, even before I've taken it. You know every thought inside my head, even before I've thought it. You know every word I'm going to say, even before I've said it. There is nothing about me you do not know. There is nothing about me that surprises you. And God, you are everywhere. If I flew to the farthest star, you were there. If I swam to the bottom of the ocean, you were there. If I ran towards the setting sun, you were there. When the dark of night swallows me up, you are there. You are everywhere I am, everywhere I'll go, and everywhere I'm not. I am never alone. Even when I was inside my mother, yet to be born, you knew me. You knew me because you made me, every part of me. You formed my fingerprint, made special just for me. You knew my name before my parents knew whether I was a boy or a girl. You knew the day I'd be born. You know every day I'll live before I've lived even one day. God, you know me completely.
everyone without exception has value because the hand of God, the mind of God, the wisdom of God was intimately involved in your creation. Verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship, his poema. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. You know, sometimes we go to an art gallery and see some beautiful sculpture or painting or, or some other piece of art, and we'll, we'll think of the workmanship that goes into something like that. The same idea is the workmanship of God. We are his creation. We are his masterpiece, if you will. Created for a purpose created in Christ Jesus for good works. Our responsibility then is to discover what those works are. What are those works, Lord? What is your will for my life? And then fulfill it. This description in these verses speaks not only of our physical bodies, but our very purpose in life. He planned it out all before we were born. All of our days were written in God's book. Like David, we can be comforted by the thought that God is close to each one of us. Verse 17 and 18 continues to focus on the intimacy of God toward us. And he expresses it in two ways here. First, he expresses the value of God's thoughts towards us how valuable they are, how precious. And secondly, he talks about the vastness of God's thoughts toward us. That covers the quality of relationship as well as the quantity of relationship. It says in verse 17 and 18, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Consider the ways that God thinks of us. His thoughts are precious. That represents value. This means he thinks of us in ways that are priceless and valuable and have purpose. Now, other people may love us, and that's awesome. And they may consider us of great value. But... God's way of loving and valuing each and every person is beyond that. Think that God considers us worthy of his thoughts. We're valuable to him. And then his thoughts are innumerable. That's the vastness of God. That means he never stops thinking of us. Can you imagine that? His thoughts are more than the number of sands in all of the beaches in all of the world. This, those grains of sand, you can't count them. That's innumerable. And yet, he thinks of us in that way. This is not how he thinks of 
all eight billion people in the world. This is how he thinks of you and you and me, individually, personally, intimately. This is how often you are on God's mind all the time. Never stops thinking of us. Now, even if we love somebody, they're not necessarily in our thoughts every second of every day. Although I tell my wife that she's on my mind all the time. But we are on God's heart, God's thoughts all the time. In that, we should find strength. We should delight in that. We should find comfort in that. And that's what keeps us going as Christians. In, in the face of adversity, in the face of difficulty and trials and problems, to know that God is thinking of us, even in the midst of those things, that keeps us going. And it should draw us closer, give us a sense of nearness to God, closeness, intimacy with God. And it's not only in our times of prayer or our times of worship or reading his word, but even when we sleep, he's near to us. When we wake up in the morning, he's there. He didn't go anywhere. He's there. And it also speaks of restoration. Restoration. When we repent of sin, when we come back to him from our spiritual sleep, he's there. He'll restore us. He'll receive us. He'll bring back that relationship when we go, go to him. Now the psalmist kind of takes a little bit of a, a left turn here, and he turns his attention to those who do not have a relationship with God. Now imagine, after everything that we've just discussed, not having that relationship with the Lord. What a sad thing to think about. What a lonely thing to think about. All the beautiful images we get in our mind when we think about the closeness of God, the intimacy of God, is contrasted here by the wrath of God against those who would reject him seems to me a no-brainer. You know, what, what choice do we have? To have God's thoughts towards us every day, all day, every moment, or to have him turn his back on us and, and, and his wrath come against us. So David goes on in, the, in 19 and 20, and he, he writes, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain, David is saying to God. These are the ones who speak against God, who deny God, who blaspheme God, who blame God. And although it can hurt when we speak falsely or... or negatively or evil against another person. Think about those who speak evil against God, wicked against, wickedly against God, falsely against God, misrepresenting him, mischaracterizing him. 
however you, you've heard it mischaracterized, an absentee landlord or not caring about the downtrodden or you've heard all of the things that people have said about God. This is David's prayer now for God to, to judge them righteously. God knows everyone who's for him and everyone who's against him. Therefore, his judgment will always be perfect. This is not capricious judgment. This is not just judge them, Lord, because I don't like them. This is judge them, Lord, for what they say and do against you. No one will be convicted falsely in God's judgment, in God's economy. And actually, the opposite is the truth. He extends mercy. To those who have spoken out against God, if you repent of that, he'll receive you back. Forgiveness is always there. Always there. David goes on in verses 21 and 22. He says, Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, this seems like harsh words for David to say, you know, to say he hates someone. But this word here is just saying, I hate what you hate, God. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. He's saying, I'm on your side, God. If they're saying something against you, I'm with you, Lord. An enemy of yours, God, is an enemy of mine. We need to be on God's side of things. You know, we can talk about politics day and night, and we have the election coming up on Tuesday. Are we on God's side? You know, we, there's some guides out in the lobby there that'll show you what the Bible says about certain topics, certain subjects. Are we on God's side of things? But what I love about many, so many of the Psalms, and when I taught through the Psalms several years ago, it seems like there's a pattern to a lot of them where David goes through this uh, kind of this journey through a Psalm. And he kind of winds up back where he started from. And he does the same thing here. He goes back to the beginning of that Psalm in order to gain proper perspective. He just had to put this these few verses in to just let God know, God, I, with everything that, I've, that you've revealed to me, your intimacy with me, Lord, I'm just letting you know, God, I'm on your side. Those people who talk against you, I'm, I feel the way you do, God. It saddens me. And then David goes on in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. And this is kind of for us. This is the self-examination part of the psalm. Measuring our thoughts, our actions, and our words. Not from our point of view, but from God's point of view. We can always justify our actions, when we measure them up against others, we can always say, well, we're better than those people or 
we're better than this person, when we measure them up at, with that standard, but when we measure up those things against God, what does God think? And so this is kind of a little daring of David to say, search me, search me, God. Know my heart. Know my heart, which is many times desperately wicked and not going in your direction, but going in my own direction. Try me. So we see here that David is saying, saying, God, examine me in these four ways. Uh, Psalm 94, 19 tells us, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. So that intimate relationship. But David here says, search me. This is the part where we allow God to see us completely. And it's strange to think about because we've already said that he knows us completely, right? He knows us perfectly. But this is more for us, just allowing God what to have access to those things in our life that that we kind of keep hidden, whatever those things are. It's about having no closed doors with God, allowing him into every room of our heart to have nothing that's off limits from God, saying, God, I'm an open book to you. I'm an open door to you, Lord. Search me. Being completely exposed before God, that's, that's tough. That's tough because we know our hearts. So to pray that prayer is difficult. And David prayed that prayer, and we know he wasn't perfect. He goes on and says, try me, examine me, scrutinize me, Lord. Prove me, test me like gold, like silver. And this is where we allow God to kind of test us and see what we're made of. A lot of times that comes through trials doesn't it? A lot of times that comes through trials. Where are we really with the Lord? When everything's going great, we can say, yes, Lord, I trust you. Yes, Lord, I walk with you all the days of my life. But when things start going south, that's a difficult thing to say. Job said in, 20, in, ver- in chapter 23, verse 10, but he knows the way I, the way I take When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Job was tested. Job was put through the fire. And he came out. He knew he was going to come out on the other side as gold. Proverbs 17.3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. David goes on and says, See if there's any wicked way in me. If there are any impurities in me, Lord. Like the silversmith would purify the silver and he would heat it up to a temperature and just let those impurities rise to the surface and then what? He would just take them off, that dross, that, that useless stuff. Regard, uh, he would disregard that. It was worthless. And then what the pure metal would, would remain the purity of the gold or the silver. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. Sometimes he tests us. Sometimes it's through trials, through going through the fire, 
that reveals who we really are and those things that are not of God that he just wants to take away, remove, so that what's left is something beautiful and valuable and functional for his purposes, for his kingdom. And then he says, lead me, lead me, God. God, if I'm not going in in the direction you want me to, lead me. Let me know, Lord. You know, on our own, we tend to go astray. Left to our own devices, we tend to go off the path that God has for us. So our prayer is to lead me in your ways into everlasting life, Lord. Listen, this is a beautiful, beautiful psalm. This is a revelation of the intimacy that God desires for each one of us. But there's also something that we must do. We must ask for God to examine us and then make sure that our devotion to him is pure. Ask him to lead us into a God-honoring life. When he turns the searchlight on of our heart, what is he going to see? He's bound to find things that aren't pleasing to him, but he will also guide us back when we seek forgiveness. How comforting is this psalm to know that God is with us all the time that his hand is upon us, that was there from the foundation of the world, that he knew us perfectly, he knows us intimately, and he continues to love us and draw us closer into his presence. Let's pray.